I remember my first hurricane. It was 2004 when Florida faced many, many storms, one after another during that summer. I was eight. I was trying to watch cartoons on the little television in my room, but static overtook the screen and I only caught glimpses of what I was trying to see. When the first walls had passed and the eye moved overhead, my father took me outside to look up. Above us, twisting into the infinite, was a tunnel of clouds that opened to gray skies above. It was not raining. It was windy. It was tense. The winds and torrents would return soon and we would retreat to security, but we waited for a moment in that gasp in the storm. I remember my second hurricane even better than my first. Specifically, I remember trying to sleep that night. I could hear the wind lashing at the windows outside, and I knew all my friends from school were scared the day before. A friend had lent me a comic book, and I had sat and read the book all day long, but when it was time to sleep, I just stared at the ceiling, thinking about the fury beyond. In another room, I could hear my family talking. They were nervous, I remember, discussing what they'd do if something happened to our house. What if we sustained damage? What would we do? I hadn't considered that in the slightest until that point. I think doom is not a concept you consider much when you're a kid, but I remember at that moment being very, very scared. When the third hurricane came, I was over it. I watched Indiana Jones for the first time and ate pizza with my dad. We watched the bands pass overhead, we watched the rain come and go, and when it was gone, it was just like any other rainy day in the Sunshine State. For a long time, I stopped being afraid of hurricanes. Until, that is, October of 2018. Hurricane Michael hit the panhandle of Florida as a Category 5. The ferocity of its power was so unrelenting. Buildings were pulled from the ground, structures were cut in half, whole neighborhoods were swept off the map. My partner's family lives on the panhandle and for many hours we couldn't get in touch with her family. When it was all over, all of them were thankfully safe, but what we saw in those few hours will never leave me. A few months later, I went up to visit and what I saw there was unbelievable. Churches and schools destroyed, miles of blue tarp on damaged roofs, debris in the streets waiting for disposal. But the most striking image was the acre upon acre of toppled trees between her hometown and the highway. The tall pines were all toppled in the same direction, the angle at which the wind came, which left one with a distinctly unsettled feeling. The forests were like an afterimage of the storm, like when you look away from a light and the colored blur still rests in your eyes. The cities were recovering, but the trees were still in that moment, in the storm, snapped, broken, collapsed, preserved in the exact instance that the hurricane ended their growth for good. In August of this year, I passed that way again. It had been over a year since I had been this far west in our state, and I hadn't seen the forest in quite some time. I was startled by what I saw on my drive. What had once been a graveyard of trees had transformed into something new, a field of brand new trees, young and green at the very beginning of their journey. As far as the hills of North Florida stretched on either side of the road, all I could see was little bristles of green, the telltale signs of a young forest on the edge of something brand new. It was all I could do not to cry at the sight of them. I later learned that these were pine farms growing new trees to be used for lumber. 
what I believe to be the second act of trees destroyed by Hurricane Michael, was not the case. It wasn't quite as magical of a story, but it sparked a thought in me. Forests have an amazing ability to survive. They're bigger than us, they're older than us, and if everything goes well, they outlive us. Hurricane Michael drastically affected the trees and forests of North Florida, and for one species known as the longleaf pine, they may never recover from what that hurricane did. The longleaf pine is one of the most important trees in our state, and if we are not careful, that forest may not outlive us. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I know it's been a scary and unusual week, and I certainly have felt that too, but when times like this come, I try to take solace in nature, and forests are a miracle of nature, unfettered resilience at its finest. If we are to learn how to survive the horrors and fears of life, I find there's not many examples in nature quite as gratifying as a forest. So this week, the longleaf pine, the forests that outlive us, and the fight in Florida to keep the trees alive. The longleaf pine ecosystem is super cool. Maybe I'm biased, but it's, I think it's great. That is Nicole Zampieri. My name is Nicole Zampieri. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at Florida State University in the Department of Geography. Um, I research longleaf pine forests. My research focuses on understanding sort of climate growth relationships in longleaf pine trees, um, which are super important species in the southeastern United States. Um, my research specifically looks at longleaf pines across natural community types in Florida, um, where they do have a stronghold and then how their growth is affected by climate and different drivers such as species composition and fire um, and hurricanes, looking at physical and biological uh, controls of growth. Nicole wrote an incredible paper on longleaf pine in relation to Hurricane Michael, so I had to call her. Naturally, as is often the case when I speak to scientists, she is extremely eager to share all the odds and ends of her field. So I've always uh, been passionate about the environment, you know, I would say uh, I consider myself to be an environmentalist, and it wasn't until college when I really learned about biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity, so biological diversity, so talking about all the different species on the earth, um, and it just so happens that the longleaf pine ecosystem, which is local to where I went to school, um, is a global diversity hotspot. Um, which means it's almost as diverse as a tropical rainforest. And so I was just always interested in working with this concept of biodiversity and preserving biodiversity. And her research on the longleaf pine happened to be going on at just the right place in just the right time. Or really, just the wrong time. So Hurricane Michael made landfall as an unprecedented Category 5 storm in October of 2018. And so we really hadn't seen storms of this strength and this intensity in recorded history in the Panhandle. And so as part of my dissertation research, I had surveyed sites all across Florida for longleaf pine, specifically looking at uh, the density of the trees, age and size structure, I said tree cores, things like that, in the summer of 2018. So that was just a few months before the storm hit. So then the storm hit, 
And I was able to go back to my sites that were impacted and then resurvey. So I was able to get this cool before and after uh, look at these sites, right? And yeah, what we found was pretty shocking. Not shocking, but I, I, I was shocked mostly because of my emotional connection, I guess. But 28 to 50% of the total remaining extent, the total global remaining extent of long we find was affected by the storm in Florida alone. So this is a huge storm. And here I'm just talking about Florida. So the storm did pass through Florida, through Georgia, into the Carolinas, and then out into the ocean again. So I didn't even consider long leaf pine elsewhere. So just considering Florida, almost 50% of, of the remaining long leaf was affected by the storm. You're hearing that right. An entire population of one species of tree was nearly cut in half because of the decimation left behind by Hurricane Michael. But centuries ago, it wasn't just Florida that held the longleaf pine in residence. Before European colonizers came to North America, most of this area was longleaf pine. The system historically stretched from Virginia south through the Florida Peninsula, Central Florida Peninsula, and then west through Texas. However, it's been reduced to less than 3% of its historic extent. Cleared for development, agriculture, longleaf pines are really high quality wood used for ships and railroads back in the day. But basically by the 1920s, we had removed almost all, all historic longleaf. Less than 3% of its historic extent. And when we say historic, we mean really, really historic. Longleaf pine forests are old. They first crept out of the Texas and Mexico region 8,000 years ago and spent the ensuing 4,000 years spreading their reach out and around the Gulf of Mexico, up to Virginia and North Carolina and into the peninsula of Florida. I think hard for us to understand about about longleaf and about most, you know, other other types of natural systems, but specifically I'm talking about longleaf, is that it stretched from Virginia through Texas and down through Florida almost entirely, you know, other than where it was bisected by rivers and, you know, depressions where, where uh, you know, it was a little bit wetter. Um, it was essentially a contiguous landscape of longleaf pine forest. The forests were aided in their growth by fire, interestingly, as fire is healthy for these forests. The indigenous peoples that lived in the region used fire frequently, and this allowed the pines to continue to spread and spread until, by the time European colonizers were moving into the region in the 1600s, most of the landscape was covered in the distinct longleaf pine forests. The pines were able to survive throughout the early development by Spaniards in Florida and Texas, since most of those developments were along the coasts, where the trees didn't populate as much. For a while, they were mostly undisturbed, living in their own ecosystems as we lived in ours. And then, the railroads came. By the early 1800s, wood was necessary for developing the steam train tracks that were creating new corridors between settlements. As the 19th century raged onward, the longleaf pine found its population steadily declining year after year. In an extensive report from the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Service, they state, quote, During 1896, 392 million cubic feet of yellow pine timber was cut and shipped to the northern United States and overseas markets, end quote. By 1907, quote, 1.4 billion cubic feet of timber were removed, end quote. 
At the same time, shipbuilders would use pine resin to create products used to construct ships. The resin stripped from the trees would leave the tree bark exposed, and even though the longleaf pine survives on fire usually, the wildfires, the uncontrollable blazes that ensued in the forests, would add to the damage. And it doesn't end there. The forests were being torn down and burned, stripped and blocked from growth, but this one detail of this report is completely insane. Quote, even where longleaf pine seedlings survived logging, they were often consumed by introduced feral hogs, causing many areas of potential longleaf pine forests to be lost. End quote. So if a forest didn't already have to survive fires and humanity, now feral hogs were coming for them. The troubles never seemed to end. Over the 20th century, the longleaf pine forests continued to change, but Nicole Zampieri shares with me that, though their population has drastically declined, the forests we have left are incredibly unique, and they can teach us many things about the way our forests work. So about this system, it's a unique savanna system, right? Which means it's actually a grassland, right? It's not a typical forest, but it's actually a fire-maintained savanna grassland. Um, and they're really unique in that longleaf pines are generally the only tree canopy, so you don't have this sort of mixed canopy species, it's just single species. So if you're in a longleaf pine stand, a collection of these trees in a specific area, you can bet that all the trees around you are also longleaf pines. There are sometimes other trees in a longleaf pine forest, but most of the time these plants live together. So this is a fire-maintained system, which we actually didn't know that for a long time, so we were kind of mismanaging it through most of the 1900s, um, thinking that fire was bad. So we sort of figured out that fire is really, really good for the system, and what that does is it um, kills back woody growth that is crowding out the understory um, and allows for this really, really diverse understory uh, to exist of grasses and forbs and different herbs. You know, when you look at a longleaf pine forest, it's very open and park-like is how it's described. It looks sort of just like grass and uh, pine trees. And so to the untrained eye or without knowing, it doesn't look very diverse, but because we think of like a tropical rainforest with all different trees and vines and flowers and stuff. But if you look closely at the ground layer in, the, in these systems, that's where you find the real biodiversity. There's hundreds of different, um, there, oh, I should say there's thousands of different species that grow in the lonely pine ecosystem. I think the number is like in the most diverse areas of the longleaf pine system, greater than 40 plants per one meter. So Whoa. imagine looking down, yeah, yeah, uh, like a patch that looks like just grass, but then when you get down to like IDing with different species, it's really greater than 40 species. I'm sure not many folks compare longleaf pines to gopher tortoises, but here I go. The longleaf pine reminds me of gopher tortoises. If you remember from last season, the tortoises build these little underground burrows, and within those burrows, many, many other species survive from the protection that the gopher tortoise provides. Longleaf pines create an ecosystem that similarly allows for massive amounts of other plant life to flourish on their forest floor. That is incredible. And though obviously looking similar to other pines in their family, longleaf pines have a few distinct physical features, some more obvious to the layman than others. If you are in a true longleaf pine stand, 
like I said, most of them are monotypic, which means there will only be that one species. So, like, if you know for sure that you're in a longleaf stand, it's most likely that all the trees around you are going to be longleaf. However, sometimes it is mixed, or if you're, like, in an urban area, you know, and you see a pine tree, and you're like, I wonder if this is a remnant longleaf. There's a couple things to IDing them. So, first of all, they have really long needles, as you can tell by the name, longleaf. The needles are up to 18 inches long. So if you can picture that, that's like a foot, a foot and a half. So pretty long. It's the longest of all of any of the eastern pine species. So uh, that's a pretty good giveaway. Nicole tells me something very special here. Something I've never heard a scientist say before, though I'm sure many feel this way. When it comes to identifying a longleaf pine in the wild, for Nicole, it's instinct. She just knows. I don't even know how to describe this. They just have like, you can tell by the silhouette, the shape of the tree that it's a long leaf. It has um, thicker branch tips. <laughs> that sounds silly, but really once you, once you catch an eye for it, I can tell immediately just by looking at the tips of the branches um, that it's a long leaf. That's amazing. <laughs> just by, you just catch a glimpse of it and you go, I know what that is. That's amazing. Oh yeah, even like, you know, driving down the highway 60, 70 miles per hour, I'm like, look at that, look at that long leaf, look at that long leaf. You know, there'll be like one leftover on the edge of the road. I think that when you can spot a tree at just a glance, your tree, then you are in deep. You want to know everything you can, and Nicole is the next in a long line of people who are trying their level best to learn every single thing they can about these trees before it's too late. And part of that begins with fire. Fire is a complicated thing. Like we discussed earlier, most of the 20th century was spent with fire as the mortal enemy of forestry work. But where fire can be a danger to most, it can also be cleansing. It's why in the dry season, you'll see huge plumes of smoke drifting up over the tree line from protected state lands. Forestry workers and park managers burn up dry bits to ensure that they can control the burn and not let it get out of their hands. But in the time of a drastic climate crisis as we are facing right now, that is a different story entirely. Uh, yeah, so the climate change story about fire is like two-sided. So when we talk about Western fires, those are there's good fires and then bad fires, right? So good fires prevent bad fires. And yeah, when we talk about like Western raging wildfires, the reason for those is because there hasn't been a fire in so long and it's so dry because of climate change that those fires are able to be so bad. Here in the Eastern United States, in the Long Beach Pine uh, system, fire is absolutely essential. Fire does a couple things. So first of all, like I said, these are really open systems. Like they have a ton of sunlight, it's not a closed canopy, it's a total totally open canopy and so what fire does is it it because the southeast is so warm and we have so much precipitation and, and rain and so species diverse right lots of species want to grow right and so the understory can get crowded and this means it crowds uh, species for nutrients for space for water for light for resources and so what the fire does is it comes through and it sort of clears clears the understory to allow more light to reach the ground to uh, more evenly sh share resources, right? And so first of all, for long, for their seed to germinate, they, that seed needs to contact bare mineral soil. So the seed won't germinate if it lands 
um, on top of a bunch of plants or on top of a bunch of uh, leaf material or, or decaying pine needles. It needs that bare soil contact. Um, and so you need the fire to come through and clear the ground for that contact. And then, yeah, removing all, removing all those extra, those weedy species or those woody species that might be shading out the understory um, is what allows for, for germination and growth. It's complicated. Sometimes we have to let destruction feed growth in a forest. But in the case of Hurricane Michael, what Nicole Zampieri's research has shown is that we can't always predict what the destruction will be and how it will manifest. The Jackson County, Florida newspaper says that the hurricane left, quote, an estimated 500 million trees broken, uprooted, or blown over, end quote. This was an obvious toll on the environment as these forests had been around for generations, but also cost several industries across the panhandle, from agriculture to timber. The National Weather Service noticed a year later that because there was no more shade in the area, the forests of the panhandle were getting unnaturally hot due to constant heat exposure. Naturally, this was more of a concern as wildfires break out when debris is dried and built up. There were 72 million tons of wood left in the path of Hurricane Michael, and that not only could burn very quickly, but could also block rain flow through the woods. It could create a flood, which could then overflow. Everyone was very, very scared because of all the threats that these downed forests could cause. Trying to decipher all that had occurred was like untangling an infinitely twisted knot. And what we found was mortality was highest in medium-sized trees, which, trees, which is pretty interesting to think about because we expected it to be higher in the, in the larger, older trees because we thought that they'd be weaker, but we didn't actually see that, which is interesting. And what was also interesting to see that the most resilient trees were the smallest trees, and we think that has to do with sort of the elasticity of the wood itself. So these, these small, skinny trees were actually able to like bend in the wind instead of snapping. And then the biggest thing we found was that looking at mortality, at the site further from the storm center, we had anywhere between 5 and 15% mortality, which when we talk about mortality, it sounds automatically bad, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, we've talked about fire, and hurricanes have always been a part of the evolution and the history of these systems. So some mortality is actually good for these systems because sure. we talked about how, you know, it's an open canopy. We need some trees to come down to keep that canopy open, right? And to allow for this regeneration and, 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 and regrowth. Uh, so that's five to fifteen percent mortality. It's probably within healthy a healthy range. But then at the at the site that I had that was um, immediately along the storm center, which is the strongest part of the storm, uh, we found eighty seven point eight percent mortality. And uh, when just looking at that that medium size class, um, it was up to ninety eight percent mortality. Oh my god! So this site, yeah, was like bulldozed by this storm, just totally, totally decimated. It's important to note the difference between mature trees and young trees. Certainly planting young new trees can be vital for a forest, but those old mature trees are something that we cannot snap a finger and get back. When we talk about ecological value, a young forest that's just freshly planted is not as valuable as, you know, an old growth, mature stand that has been growing for hundreds of years. So that's the type of thing that we, we lost that we will never gain again, or, you know, it'll take us hundreds of years to gain that again. Nicole co-wrote a paper on this study titled The Impact of Hurricane Michael on Longleaf Pine Habitats in Florida. That's how I found her and her work. It covers everything from tree age to tree dispersion to tree loss. 
It is full of very important numbers and graphs, and it's a comprehensive and accessible account of all they found in the lost pine forests. Naturally, their data is chilling. The area that we live in is part of what is called the North Atlantic Coastal Plain, or the NACP. Their conclusion about trees in the NACP is more a conclusion about hurricanes themselves. Quote, in the NACP, storms of increased strength and frequency pose a significant threat to the longleaf pine ecosystem and the numerous species that depend on it. End quote. They go on to say that the loss of mature trees is quote unquote catastrophic, and that even trees that are protected on protected land, like the pine trees, are still susceptible to the impact of hurricanes. Nicole tells me that drought is a concern, increased precipitation is a concern, excessive salt water in the ground is a concern. Hurricane Michael was just the beginning. I know what you're thinking. There's got to be some good news. When I first reached out to Nicole, I was hoping for good news. I had seen these little baby forests on my drive after so much devastation, and when I found Nicole's paper, I made a quick assumption. Maybe this new forest I was seeing on the road was the same longleaf pines that Nicole was writing about. Soon enough, I was doing my best to describe what I had seen to Nicole, hoping that she might know what I was talking about. She very quickly broke the bad news to me. What I was seeing was likely not restoration of longleaf pine. It may be another species of pine, or even a pine plantation, where new trees were being grown to be sold. Determined to prove my theory correct, I went to Google Maps, virtually driving the back roads of the Panhandle to find the young forest I saw in August. When I at last found it and sent it to Nicole, we had an answer. She was, of course, correct. She is an expert, after all. She said they were perhaps loblolly, or slash pine, and definitely part of a pine plantation due to the uniformity of their planting. They're much too straight to be a random scattering of a new forest. Though disappointed, I understood that the magical story of a forest's rebirth would be much too convenient for my little podcast. Nature is not that easy. Sometimes, it just doesn't go that way. I did contact Nicole, because I loved the image in my head that the young forest conjured. A horrible thing had happened to Florida's forests, a hurricane caused by heating oceans, a consequence of years of human-caused climate change. Then, by miracle, a new life was growing in those woods. I wanted that narrative. It brought me a lot of peace. In difficult times, nature can be an antidote, a mirror to our social qualms with an answer in its own natural cycles. Nicole apologized as we were talking, as she realized I was looking for a hopeful story about new forests and better tomorrows, but the truth is that you can't force a good narrative out of a dire situation. Sometimes, bad things happen, and all you can do is cope. That's not to say there isn't good news for the longleaf pine. There is work to be done, and luckily people are doing it. I've talked about it before, but I find when my existential dread creeps in and I fear for all our troubles, mostly environmental, I ease my mind by thinking of all the really smart people who I know are fighting the fight, like Nicole Zampieri. The greatest goal of my research is to understand sort of patterns of growth in Florida to gain insight into how vulnerable the species is to climate change. So we generally think that the species um, should be pretty resilient 
to climate change, but I would like to really break that down and make sure that we're not making assumptions here. You know, I want to I want to be able to understand um, exactly what's going to happen to them and better inform targeted management and restoration plans so that we are conserving and restoring in a way that accounts for climate change impacts. Are you optimistic that that is something that will come to be in the next several years? Yes, I am. I, I think that climate change research on longleaf is kind of lacking. There's definitely people doing the work, but um, the few people that I've spoken to in management and, and policy are always grateful to have my input. They say, like, you know, we know we don't we're glad to have you comment on this or whatever because we don't know what's happening with climate change. Um, and I think that they generally organizations and the government want to restore and manage for this ecosystem. And so there's a, a need and a want for this information. They, they are grateful to receive it, I think. When I was in the process of writing that paper, I was talking to land managers in the region and I was finding that nobody had a plan. Nobody knew what to do afterwards. Everybody was on a different page. Nobody knew if we should log it, if we should plant, if we should restore, if we should just burn it, if we should wait and see what happens. It was really complicated. And I think um, with my paper, I've, I've provided sort of a call to action saying this is happening now and it's time for us to actually work on creating plants. Nicole is optimistic, not just in the work, but in the fact that people do want to make that change. They want this to be done. I want this to be done. And even though I didn't get the easy narrative of new growth amongst the ruins, Nicole wound up leaving me an important nugget of wisdom without even realizing it. In a forest, fire is a blessing or a curse. It could burn away the things you don't need or surprise an ecosystem when it's unprepared and leave devastation in its wake. Fire is not the enemy per se. The fight is about how we prepare our forest for when the fire comes. It's either a beast that is out of our control set to destroy everything we have created or it destroys all that is unnecessary and when it's gone, we're even stronger than we were before. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you were here. I hope you've had an alright week. I hope you've taken care of yourself. Take a break if you need it. If you're brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really amazing stories waiting for you in the back catalog. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I would recommend listening to last autumn's episode about gardening in Florida, or my episode about Hurricane Andrew from the beginning of this year. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And if you want to follow my personal account, you can do so at WFMNick on Twitter. I look forward to hearing from you.
I'd like to give a very special thank you to Nicole Zampieri. We had such a blast talking about trees and her work. If you want to read her paper, I've attached it in the description below. It's a valuable and important read, and Nicole has promised more great stories in the future. Hopefully, you'll hear from Nicole again on this show very soon. All the music used in this episode is from Loba Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, the story of Lola Sanchez, Florida's Confederate spy, and the Civil War in Palatka. It is a really fun story. You're going to love it. I'll see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside, and please, drink more water. Have a good week. Take care of yourself. <laughs>